God. We believe in, an, in a, a guy who came 2,000 years ago. We believe in somebody who lived 2,000 years ago that we uh, converse with that can't see, touch, or feel. And we believe that 2,000 years ago he was risen from the dead. We spend a lot of time, a lot of time worshiping and singing to that being. And, and uh, uh, if you didn't have a sense that there was a God, you'd think we were crazy. Um, and so one of the things that we do when we come together is just talk about the fact that, that this reality is reality, but it is not the only reality. There's another reality. There's a different reality beyond what we're experiencing, and it's available to us, and it's not intuitive. It's not demonstrable. You cannot empirically test for it. You can't run a chemical test for it. Um, we are physical beings in a physical reality encountering a spiritual being, and and sometimes um, I, I just say that because in reading through the commentaries and in re reading through the messages, sometimes you forget that. Sometimes you forget we're talking about um, a, a life beyond the life that we have right here. I mean, we believe in angels. Those, those are real entities. There are likely some right here, right now. We can't see them. And a, a Ivy League trained um, scientist may well think that you're crazy for even proclaiming that sort of thing, and yet is it, it is as much a reality as this podium, as much as a reality as this microphone. And so we want to get together and remind ourselves of these things because it's so easy for the world to just creep in and say that this is the only reality, there is no other reality, when in fact there is a very definite, more profound, more excellent reality beyond what we can see, and it really helps to come together and talk about it. Um, and we're in this unusual uh, portion of the book of Daniel because we're talking about a king that lived long ago whose life was very affected by a dream. And so we want to get into that. Um, in fact, this is a very unusual portion of the book of Daniel because we're in chapter 4. For those of you that, um, if you have your Bibles or whatever, Daniel chapter 4. This is a chapter that starts off, Nebuchadnezzar, king of all peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. This is a chapter in the book of Daniel written by a Babylonian king. This entire chapter is written by, by Nebuchadnezzar. Some, some people say that Daniel uh, inserted a piece here or there. That may well be. But for, but for the, our purposes, this is really uh, unusual. In fact, maybe Daniel was so compelled by the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar and what happened to him when he had this dream that he decided to just include it. But it's a terrific portion of scripture that, that talks about the consequences of pride. And it talks about the lengths that God will go to rescue a person. And it gives a picture of compassionate confrontation. Those three things, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, so, section one, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I'm reading out from the NIV because that's what I put in my notes. But if you have the New Roman Standard, that's also there. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure, it is my pleasure, <laughs> this is a king talk, it is my pleasure to talk about the miraculous signs and the wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, how his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. So here we, we just launch right into chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar starts to talk, right? And he says, um, like this section is basically exactly what it says. He wants the peoples of every language, of every nation, 
all those who live on the earth. He wants them to know what happened to him. I want you to know what incredible thing happened to me. And what happened to him was incredible. We're, we're going to, I mean, uh, spoiler alert, we're going to learn that he is turned into a man who thinks that he's an ox. He thinks he's a cow. He thinks he's a cow so much that he lives outside and eats grass, not for a month or a week or, or several months, but for seven years. He does this. The king of all Babylon thinks that he's a cow, thinks he's an ox, and he's outside. He says, I want you to know what happened to me. I want you to know the wonders of the mighty God. Greater are his signs, mightier are his wonders. And so I was in my palace, contented and prosperous. Um, and so, and then he practically erupts in this praise. How great are his signs? How mighty are his wonders? His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He's writing to honor our God. Our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that God. He's got a hundred different gods. He loves the God of Bel. That's why his name is Daniel, Belteshazzar. He names it after his own God. He, he has the God of Marduk. He has other gods. He has Baals. He, he has gods of, of fertility. But here he's honoring the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and so this is this chapter is what I call it's about the hound of heaven. You ever heard God called the hound of heaven? Where, uh, in other words, he's relentless. He's going after you. He's not letting go. He's a he's a he's a uh, bloodhound who's not letting the prey go. The hound of heaven coming after um, after the king. Um, he's in his palace. He's contented. He's prosperous. No battles going on. There's the kingdom is secure. Everywhere you look, you see this massive infrastructure, this, this kingdom, so much gold, you can't even imagine it. The walls, as we talked about, 300 to maybe 350 feet tall, maybe several, uh, maybe about 25 feet wide, a couple of them, huge. Everywhere he looks, he's got several square miles. We're going to talk, talk a little bit about the wonders of Babylon at some other point, but, but everywhere he looks, he thinks this, this is incredible in infrastructure, and he's contented, and he's happy. Where, he at, where, where he's at. Um, and he's pondering these things and he has a dream. Again. Right? Yeah, this, this is a guy who, who dreams. And the dream, it terrifies him. This dream scares the tar out of him. Um, and so he brings it to the wise men of the kingdom, same thing, they interpret the, uh, to interpret the dream. Just like that's what happened in chapter 3, they still cannot interpret the dream, or maybe they will not. Some versions of your Bible, if you have the King James, it says they would not interpret the dream. Um, so in my uh, American sentence, says they could not interpret the dream. Um, and uh, maybe the wise men were thinking, this dream is pretty obvious what it means. And I don't want to be the one to tell the king what this dream means. That's going to be off with my head when he realizes that this dream is all about him. Uh, but maybe it was that they really could not figure it out. Some, some dreams are like that. Um, what, what happened though is the king has forgotten the message from chapter three. That message was, there's no wise man, there's no enchanter, there's no magician, there's no diviner that can explain this dream to you, king. Uh, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, who pulls back the curtains. Um, it happened in the first dream, it happens here. It's good to remember that um, when we're exploring uncharted territories, when we're exploring things that are hidden, He's the God who understands and unveils mysteries. He does it for the asking. When we ask him, he actually unveils it. And so Nebuchadnezzar seeks Daniel. Um, 
And you can tell that he thinks Daniel's able, not necessarily the God to whom Daniel speaks, but he's, he's honoring Daniel. He's not quite got to the point where he's honoring God yet. Um, because he says, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mercy is too difficult to you. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream. And here's the dream. I looked at Daniel, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to all the ends of the earth. Everybody could see it, and its leaves were gorgeous. They were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant, and there was food for all. And under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and every creature was fed. And in the visions I saw, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger. Some of your versions say a watcher. Watcher, W-T-C-H-E-R, coming down, not a watcher, uh, coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud, loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump remain, keep the roots, bind them with iron with bronze, let them remain in the ground and the grass of the field. And let him, all of a sudden we were talking about a tree, let this tree happen, and now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live. This is verse um, six, 15. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the, of the earth, and let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. This decision is announced by the messengers. The Holy One declares a verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to whoever he wants and sets over those kingdoms the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had, now Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name. Tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So, um, we could talk a long time about whether this dream was easy to understand or not. Um, some people, some commentators say it's so obvious, you know, but maybe, maybe not. I've had dreams that they were obvious to others, but they weren't so obvious to me. But when I talked about Amy to them or I talked to others about them, they're like, well, you know, of course this is that. And then once they unveil it, you think to yourself, yeah, I'm in Doha. <laughs> but, but at the time, it wasn't one so obvious to me. But, the key here is that Nebuchadnezzar, whatever his dream was, it terrifies him. It scares the terror. That's the thing. Um, and so he probably did have some sense that this thing is about him. Uh, Daniel provides the interpretation. So verse 19, Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream and its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its means to your adversaries. The tree you saw, your majesty, you are that tree. And you saw this holy one, the watcher, coming down from heaven, saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and the iron and bronze. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kings on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Daniel here gives the king some advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. Renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel here, he has a real and astounding compassion for the king. He, he's not just sucking up to him when he says, oh, if only this dream applied to your enemies. Oh, it grieves me. He sat there stunned for an hour before he could even speak. Terrified, not just terrified of the king, but terrified of what this means for the kingdom. He, he is deeply, deeply grieved, and we know this because Daniel doesn't behave this way for every king. We're going to read uh, maybe even next week or two weeks from now about his interpretation of a, of a writing on the wall for King Belshazzar, um, who is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, running the kingdom at the time. Daniel is not quite this kind. He's not quite this sensitive <laughs> with Belshazzar. He's, he's pretty matter-of-fact, and you can tell he doesn't quite like him. Like but Daniel's got affection for King Nebuchadnezzar. He knows this is a negative dream for the king. And that's why he sits there astonished. He's terrified. He's silent for some time. It's bad news, and Daniel has been close to the king for some years now. It's maybe about maybe 15 years after the incident um, um, uh, where he interpreted the other dream. Um, this, I would just say, in my opinion, is perfect confrontation. <clears throat> Very few people like to confront. Um, I tend to be wary of those who do like to confront. I tend to be nervous around those people say, you know, I don't mind confrontation. In fact, I kind of enjoy it. I mean, there is a there's a piece of that where you expose, you know, what what is uh, an error, and you finally get things out in the open. But uh, and it's necessary. It has to be done. I just don't like it very much. I don't know very many people who do. It's just unavoidable sometimes. Um, but Daniel has to confront this king with a very clear message from the, from God. This is a bad news message, king. And I've got to come to you. He does it with tears. Mm -hmm. He does it with grieving. He does it with sensitivity. He's got compassion for the king. He, he's like, everything about his, in, his interaction with the king says, oh my God, if only there was another way. If only there was something else that could happen to you, the king instead of what, instead of what is going to happen to you. But he doesn't abbreviate the message. He doesn't, he doesn't shortchange it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't pretend it's not real. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he just lays it out there. He lays it out there with very obvious, very overt tenderness. Um, it's really helpful to remember when you have to confront um, to do so, and it's hard to do this. And, and frankly, I mess up more than more than not, and many of us mess up more than not. But to do it the way that Jesus commands us to do it, which is um, is basically the Matthew 18 passion. Um, you, you intercede for the person. You pray for the person. You get the Lord's heart for that person. You realize they are created just like you're created out of the dust. And he has great affection for them. He sees them as they truly are, even though the behavior that you're seeing that you have to confront is not a reflection of who they truly are. Um, Daniel says, um, I mean, excuse me, Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of them. Just the two of them. Don't announce it in a meeting. Don't proclaim it in the marketplace. Just go to them, look them straight in the eye, and say, I've got, I've got an issue. 
I've been praying about this. There's been a little bit of weeping involved. I wish there was another way, but I just need to ask you. And you bring it out. And if he listens to you, you want him over. And so your job in that confrontation is to make it easy to listen to you. <laughs> so you don't want to come with harsh words. You want, to, you want to bathe that thing with intercession. You want to make your words as easy to listen to, as easy to receive as possible, because your goal is restoration. And if they completely blow you off, if they completely dish you, your next step is to go get a friend, a mutual friend. The two of you go, and you bring the message again. You pray over it. You weep over it. You ask the Lord's guidance. You get ask the Lord to give you his heart for them. And then you, the two of you go, and you go, uh, go to them. Um, so that everything can be established by two or more witnesses. That's in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 says, if you still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen, and the person, if the person refuses to listen, even to the church, to treat them as you were a pagan or a tax collector. I'm not hearing. I don't know why. Sorry, you missed some really great stuff, too. Can you hear it now? Okay. Um, so the, the living God has issued a decree against the king. You're going to be outside for seven years. You're going to be living like an animal. You're going to, until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Um, but Daniel has some encouragement. Look, this kingdom is going to be restored to you. At the end of seven years, or excuse me, when you acknowledge that heaven rules, and it's going to be seven periods of time. And then Daniel provides this, this counsel. Um, he says, look, here's what I give you. Here's some advice that I have for you, O king. They're, they have a pretty tight relationship. Renounce your sin. Do what is right. Renounce your wickedness. And be kind to the oppressed. Perhaps this can be delayed. Perhaps it can be avoided. So I talked in the beginning about the unusual fact that we uh, are existing in a reality in the midst of an unseen reality. And one of the connections between those two spheres is dreams. There's other connections, many other connections, but one thing is dreams. Um, we have a way of connecting our world and God's world in an undeniable and really prominent place in the, in the Word. When you go through the Bible, you see it very prominently. Daniel had many dreams. Joseph had many dreams. Joseph affected an entire nation of Egypt through as being influenced by dreams. Joseph, uh, Jesus's stepfather, <laughs> Mary's husband, moved his family as a result of dreams that he was given, messages that he was given. Um, over and over again, gave, I mean, uh, Gideon, uh, was in, was greatly encouraged by a dream that he had. Um, it's odd, but it's true that there are certain symbols in dreams that seem to be kind of consistently interpreted. You know that that's probably the reason why dream interpreters can be uh, pretty good. Um, five is the number of glory, right? Seven, the number of perfection or the number of completion. Six, we've talked about this before, just shy of seven. Six is the number of man because Man thinks he's perfect, and he's always just a little bit off of, of six. Eight, typically new beginnings. It's not, you know, when you uh, see something at eight, uh, 11, what is 11 again? Transition. Eight, 11, transition. That typically means transition. 
Houses, cars, tents, ships, boats tend to reflect, in, in your dream, tend to reflect your ministry, your sphere of influence, kind of your, what you're doing, kind of what you're about, you know, you in terms of uh, running that, that thing. Um, and trees, very often in dreams, refer to leadership, refers to somebody in a, in a position of leadership. And you might say, um, who says all these things in the conversation? Where do you get all that? And mostly it's, it's where I get is from a class that I took on, on dreams years ago and, and consistently applying it and discovering that they, there actually is a consistency here. But also in the Bible, for instance, in Judges, there are several analogies to the use of these objects with, with people. Like, for instance, Judges chapter 9 talks about uh, uh, a, an exchange, a, a, a parable, is what I was looking for, between trees, the olive tree, uh, uh, the kingdom, uh, uh, the, the, uh, um, one, one day the trees went out, Judges 9 8, went out to anoint a king for themselves. And they said to the olive tree, Be our king. They talked they talk to the fig tree, Be our king. They talked to a vine, a, a, a vine, a grapevine, Be our king. None of them will do that. Um, finally, they approached a thorn bush, and the thorn bush agrees as long as he can take down the cedars of Lebanon. And that's, that's an interpretation of that for another time, but that's an example of, of the Bible using those symbols. David, Psalm 37, says, I've seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree. He may well have been talking about Nebuchadnezzar, but he soon passed away and it was no more. Though I looked for him, he did not come. He was, he was like a luxuriant tree. So um, anyway, he, these symbols are things that you can find in your mind, which is why you need to keep a journal by your bed and a pencil, maybe one that lights up at night so you can write down your dreams, because some of them are pizza-based. Some of them are fatigue-based. Some of them are from heaven. Um, so um, the dream is fulfilled. All this happened, section 3, excuse me, uh, verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, twelve months later, after Daniel's interpreted the dream, twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the word from on his lips, a voice came from heaven saying, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with wild animals, and you will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth, and gives them to anyone who wishes. And immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people. He ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven, and his hair grew like feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. The Bible says that all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but it was God's mercy that it was 12 months before, before that fulfillment came. This delay after judgment announced is, is God does this not every time, but a lot. He gives every opportunity for turnaround. He provides every opportunity for repentance. He wants to get every chance. He did that with Noah and with the flood. Um, we don't know if Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel's advice initially, um, or when, whether he relapsed, but it was 12 months before what was prophesied in that dream took place. 
which is what Peter says in Second Peter. Don't let this thing of fact, uh, this small fact, escape your notice. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, like some call the counsel of us, some, the way some people define slowness, but He's patient with you, not wishing that any perish. Sometimes we think, yeah, yeah, you want to perish. He really does not want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. So Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his royal palace, and, he's, and he thinks aloud to himself, um, maybe there's some people that were listening, and he says, isn't this the great Babylon that I have built? You know, this is pretty incredible, and I've done it all. It's right that I should be king of the world. In fact, no one else could handle it. No one else could be king of the world like I'm king of the world. And certainly nobody else could do as much as I have. Look at this. And Babylon was amazing. It was extraordinary. And even as the words are on his lips, he's driven away from the people. He's driven into a field, and he, he's, he basically loses his kingdom until he acknowledges that the sovereign God is the most high over all the kingdoms. Jesus told a story one time about a man who uh, was so satisfied with the abundance of his crop that he decided he's going to build bigger and bigger barns to store it all rather than to use it or distribute it. And he thought to himself, when I get these barns built and I get all this stuff in store, I'm going to save my soul. Soul, take your rest. Eat, drink, be merry. But Jesus called him a fool because his life is required for him. Mm. And heard at that point that though he was rich on the earth, he was, was not rich for his God. Also in, in the New Testament Acts, there's a story, remember this, about um, one day Herod uh, is sitting in the Colosseum, and he put on his royal apparel, and he takes a seat in the washroom, and he begins delivering an address to the people in the Colosseum. And people kept crying out, kept crying out, it's the voice of a god and not of a man. They're so impressed and they want Herod to live it up. And Herod's receiving all this praise. The voice of a god, not of a man. Very nice. And it says, verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he died right then. The real secret Paul found uh, is that he says, I found the secret of contentment. Philippians 4. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The key verse here is that in, in uh, Daniel, in verse 34, he says, At the end of that time, at the end of seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praise the Most High, and I honor and glorify Him who lives forever. Seven years go by. Seven years of being outside with the mind of an ox. Seven years of like eating grass. Seven years of being outside with animals. A year goes by, maybe, and his officials are looking around thinking, what are we going to do about the king? And when word gets out that we've got an insane king out there, what are we going to do? Two years goes by, three years goes by. What's our message to the media? What do we tell the press? What, in terms of what's going on with the, with the king. The scripture doesn't say this, but there are theories out there that Daniel had a big role to play in how that kingdom was run during the years when Nebuchadnezzar was out in the field. Um, because when he interpreted the dream, he noticed he 
came to Cook, there are going to be seven periods that are assigned to you. Seven periods. And so Daniel knows, I've got to endure this thing for seven years. We've got to keep things running here. And he's probably telling the other officials, we've got to keep things hanging here for another three years, another two years, another one year, just one more year, and it'll be okay. And they're like, I don't know, Daniel. But it's incredible that this kingdom was not overrun by a coup. It's not overrun by, by discontent uh, subjects. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, uh, I read in a commentary, although I don't have the historical source, but they're saying you know that if you're going to really find in the Babylon Babylonian history about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar becoming an animal and eating grass, but what you do find is a seven-year period where there were no laws passed, there there were no proclamations, there were no edicts made. You know, so it's it's seven. They call it the seven years of silence that biblical. Conservative historians will look at it and say, maybe that was the time. There, there wasn't a whole lot of things. They were just trying to keep the kingdom together, just trying to keep it good and just making sure those walls were protected. Um, um, let's see. It, this song that he calls out in verse um, 34, uh, it, it, it looks like a song. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases, as he pleases with the powers of heaven. He does as he pleases with the powers of the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand. No one can say to him, what are you doing? That's God. Um, and so he, he, does, he erupts in this song that... Um, that about how great lengths the Lord has gone to save him. <clears throat> so I don't know, with that song, I mean, with that song, the way that Nebuchadnezzar said it, it sounds like he's a Christian. I mean, it sounds like he knows the living God. Um, and I don't know whether gonna, he's going to be in heaven with us or not. Like, I, I kind of think he might, just because he's honoring the Lord, and it's so genuine here. And it's just like the living God to go to such great lengths to reach somebody. That's the way he is. Um, because here's the thing, nobody is exempt. Nobody is too far gone. Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant. He, he was a bloody king. He killed women. He killed children. He wiped out entire villages. Um, he was known for the most barbaric practices of the day. Nebuchadnezzar, this is, this is Daniel's friend. Um, he, it was so barbaric that when Habakkuk hears that the Chaldeans are coming, the, the Nebuchadnezzar's army, he is, he is just terrified. He's, he's like, we're going to be wiped out. It, the entire Jewish nation is going to be wiped out. There's not even going to be a remnant. That's a, that's a reputation. Because you know what they you know what they do, God, is what Habakkuk was saying. They wipe out everybody. They don't leave a trace. Women, children, it doesn't matter. They wipe them all out. He had a temper, Nebuchadnezzar did, that was so sharp, as we read before, that because people couldn't tell him the dream that he dreamed, his, he's got to wipe out all the wise men in Babylon. He's got a temper. He's barbaric. He, he built this whole great uh, empire, uh, this whole wonderful Babylon, all with slave labor, unpaid labor, people forced, they call it conscript, conscripted service, forced to work for him. This is, this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is the one who God is going after. And yet God does go after him, and he humbles him, and he responds. It's, it's the same thing that happened in Nineveh when Jonah comes to Nineveh and, and proclaims against this 
Gentile nation who's got their fists in the face of God, trying to claims you've got you've got uh, a small amount of time and you better repent. And they do. They turn around and God forgives them. And Jonah's like, I knew you would do that. I knew you, they, these are barbaric heathen people, and I knew you would forgive me because you were kind-hearted and slow anger, and you were abounding in love. And I'm so ticked off about it. That's that's Jonah in about Um he goes out, it happens to Manasseh, by the way. Manasseh, remember we talked about Manasseh is Josiah, King Josiah's grandfather. And, and he, I don't even want to talk about the stuff that he does, but basically our image of hell comes from a valley uh, in Jerusalem that where they burn the garbage. And they burn the garbage in that valley because they basically have desecrated it because that's where Manasseh would send his children, his own children, through a fire and sacrifice to, to false gods. Manasseh turned the entire nation to, uh, to idols. It's said that there was not a, a more wicked king than Manasseh in the king of Israel. And he turned at the end of his life and followed the Lord. Manasseh did. Um, this is the shocking reality of life in Jesus. Here's a quote from a, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Blur, who's no, no longer with us. But, but uh, see, see if you can get your mind around this. He said, Dallas Blur says, if I as a recovering sinner myself, accept Jesus' good news, I can go to the mass murderer and say, you can be blessed in the kingdom of the heavens. There's forgiveness that knows no limits. I can go to the pedophile. I can go to the perpetrator of incest, to the worshiper of Satan, to those who rob the aged, to those who rob the weak, to the cheat, to the liar, the bloodsucker, the vengeful, blessed. Blessed, blessed, as they flee into the arms of the kingdom among us. These are the grubby people. In their midst, a Corey Ten Boom takes the hand of the Nazi who killed their family members. He says, This scene is strictly not of the earth. That's Dallas Wood. That, that's, that's what's going on here. It's, it's shockingly, it's, it's shockingly. It's God's grace. It's just ridiculously abundant. It's ridiculously far-reaching. There are no impossible cases. And the king's final conclusion is, those who walk in pride is able to humble. So one of the, that's, that's his, his conclusion in four. One of the big things that Jason Ramirez is doing on Friday nights, he's talking about uh, revival with, with these guys. It's been really great, really privileged to be there. Um, one of his big themes is humility, is the importance of humility. So he talks about, for instance, the 1906 um, revival in Azusa, and William Seymour, uh, African-American guy, black guy, who um, is so humble that they, because of segregation rules, when he's learning how he's going to Bible school, he's not allowed in the classroom. He has to sit in the doorway and listen, and he's honored to sit in the doorway. He's like, I'm so glad I at least get to listen and, and, and learn. Um, he would pray, Jason told us last night, he would pray with a box over his head for some 10 minutes, sometimes up to an hour, just humble, just trying to just trying to make it, it's not about me, it's not about me. And look who the Lord uses to bring out one of the most astounding revivals in our country in 1906. It, it, it reached the world. Um, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Because see, God, opposes the proud. 
He, he opposes pride. He's guaranteed, it's guaranteed to get you defined as a hindrance to the kingdom rather than a contributor if you're walking in pride. And so this is the part that <clears throat> uh, hits me so hard. And so let me just read this article. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, by C.S. Lewis, and uh, I've got some excerpts here. Um, because I think it really hits um, pride. So you have to bear with me. It's about a page and a half. Um, but I think it's really worth listening to because the fact is every single one of us deals with pride at some level, every single one. Um, and I do. So there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes. They hate it when they see it in somebody else and which hardly any people except for Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they're bad-tempered, or that they can't keep their heads about girls, or about drink, or even I've heard them say that they're cowards, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone say uh, that they were prideful. At the same time, I, I must say they're a Christian. At the same time, I very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who shows the slightest mercy to it than others. Earlier, he's writing a different article. He goes, when I was talking in an earlier article about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals doesn't lie there. It doesn't lie in sexual morality. It doesn't lie in those, in those things. Uh, well, now we've come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all those things are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Does it sound to you like it's an exaggeration? Well, so think it over. Because I said a moment ago that if pride, the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others, which is true. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way to ask yourself is, well, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? How much do I dislike it when, I, when people refuse to take notice of me, or shove the oar in, or interrupt me, or patronize me, or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everybody else's pride. My, com my pride is in competition with your pride. And so it's going to bump into your pride. Because the Christians are right. It's Pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices sometimes bring people together. You can find good fellowship and jokes and funniness among drunken people, <laughs> which is true, among sexually immoral people. But pride always means enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity between man and God. In God, you come up with something, you come against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is level above you. And so note, by the way, that Nebuchadnezzar only recovered when he looked up. And he took his eyes off himself, and he took his eyes off of his field, and he looked up. You can't see those things that are above you when you're looking constantly at yourself. Luckily, says C.S. Lewis, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious practices are making us feel like we're good above all, uh, or if we're making us feel better more some, than somebody else, I think we may be sure that we're being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. You need to be very careful. 
This is this is Nazi, so that's why I just throw this in. This is what the Pharisee was doing when he compared himself to the tax collector. The Pharisee stood, was praying to himself, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But that but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Back to C.S. Lewis, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you will forget about yourself. Uh, uh, is that you forget about yourself. Um, but he wants to guard against a couple of misunderstandings. He says, don't think that pride is something that God forbids because he's offended, or that humility is something he demands because of his own dignity, as if God himself were proud. He's not the least bit worried about his dignity. The point is, <laughs> this is the point. He wants you to know him. He wants to give you himself. He and you are two things of such a kind that if you really want to get in any kind of touch with him, you're going to be humble. In fact, you're going to be delightedly humble. You're going to feel the immense and infinite relief of having once again gotten rid of all that silly nonsense about your own dignity, which made you restless and unhappy. He's trying to make you humble in order to make that moment possible. He's trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress, in which we've all gotten ourselves up to and we're starting about like the little idiots we are, so seriously. But don't imagine, by the way, finally, that <clears throat> we're almost finally. Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he's going to be what most people call humble nowadays. He's not going to be the sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Of course, no, that was not me. You know, probably when you meet somebody like that, a real humble person, you're going to think, well, he seemed like a very cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what I had to say. If anybody can think, if anybody is going to acquire humility, the first step, he said, is to realize that you're proud. That's the first step in acquiring humility. And it's a big step, says C.S. Lewis, and he's right. At least, until you recognize that, until you come to terms with that, nothing can be done without it. And if you think that you're not conceited, if you think you're not proud, it means you're very proud and very conceited indeed. That's C.S. Lewis. And that's the big point about this story, that, that God is able to humble the proud, he's able to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And the second big part of this, just a, a minute or two, is that, look, there is nobody is beyond God's reach. Um, nobody is beyond his care. We have, um, and, and that's because God does it. It's not you that does it. It's not you that has to reach out to that family member or that friend that you think of as soon as I say, nobody's beyond his reach. The hard cases, what we call the hard, what I used to call the hard cases. My brother, you know, being one of them. A hard case that doesn't want to have anything to do with God, and nobody is beyond him. What, what happens is, I get kind of grateful. But God has never taken his eyes off him. God has not taken his eyes off those people who are in your, in your mind as well. There are no hard cases for God. There's nothing impossible for him. Um, we have exhausted trying to think of ways to reach that hard-hearted person. Um, he's not lacking in ideas. God's not lacking in ideas. Um, so the thing is, for us, not to let ourselves get hard-hearted over a hard-hearted person. Hmm. Not to get weary in, in well-doing. In fact, what I'd like to do, Daniel, let me, uh, let me come up and just play a few chords for mine, is 
when, when I brought that topic up, there's somebody who came into your mind, at least one person, um, guaranteed. Somebody who you care about, you recognize the benefits of knowing the Lord, and you wished for all the world that they would turn, that they would, they would see him. And, uh, <clears throat> um, and so I want to pray for those people. I mean, I'd, I'd like to ask you to stand um, and just 